0: So tonight, once again, continuing on with the exploration of the seven factors of enlightenment. Um, Once again, I'm going to begin by just doing a brief summary of these factors. And who knows, maybe there'll be a quiz at the end (laughs) to see if you remember. (laughs) I think it's really helpful to do this, just because, you know, to hear it over and over again, it, it starts to seep in and these are just really essential factors that we become acquainted with that we come to know in our own experience that we come to know when they're present when they're not present and what helps to bring them uh into being and then once they've arisen how we can through continuation of wise attention cease to or continue to nourish their development so <clears throat> a brief history. <laughs> Mindfulness. notice just the bringing our bare attention to whatever arises in our bodies and mind. Doing this in the simplest way that we can. Just being present to what happens, without judging, analyzing, figuring out. Just coming to know experience intimately. In doing so, we arouse investigation, the non-analytical, intuitive probing into experience, where we are able to discern of the qualities of the experience. We probe into the texture really coming to get a sense of what it is, what are the qualities that are present. In doing so, this gives rise to effort or energy, where there's a momentum, a momentum to keep coming back, to stay present to our experience. As this energy increases, we find the arising of rapture. It's where there's a joyful interest in what's happening. It can be also described as a delight in seeing truth. There's a raptness of attention that leads to an agility and lightness in the mind and body. And when this really deepens, it becomes very pervasive, and this leads to a contentment which gives rise to calm or tranquility. And this is where there's a coolness of the mind, when it's no longer restless and agitated a tranquility that is deep and restful. And this tranquility supports the next factor of enlightenment, that of concentration. And this is the subject of tonight's talk. So concentration is another one of the stabilizing factors. The function Of concentration is to exclude distraction. This is something we experience many times in our life. You know, we need some degree of concentration to read a book, to be able to stay focused on, you know, sentence by sentence, the unfolding of the story or the information. It could be that we might be reading a book and we're sitting in the midst of a room full of people and there's a lot of sounds, uh, noises around us, um, hearing different things that people are saying and we're trying to read our book and if the concentration isn't strong, the attention will be very scattered and we will have to read and reread and uh, read over and over again to try and understand what is there. But if concentration is strong, we might find that we can focus on the words on the paper. And we stay so focused that we might forget that we're sitting in a room full of people. Concentration applies similarly when we sit down to meditate. As we begin to meditate, we might pick an object of meditation And then we connect and sustain the attention on this object of meditation. As we do so, what we're doing is bringing together or harnessing all of the energy that's there and focusing it on the object of concentration. And this brings about a great unification in the mind this allows us to collect all of that energy so that we're not, that the the attention's not dissipated, that, you know, we don't sit down and, you know, start thinking about the past, jumping to the future, start analyzing, thinking about our experience. We find that there's an ease in connecting and sustaining the attention. It's very helpful in our lives because when we have a lack of concentration, there can be strong feelings of fragmentation. That um, you know, I was just watching the news tonight, and they were talking about attention deficit disorder. You know, which is a very painful state in which the attention span is so short that. The mind is simply flitting about from experience to experience to experience, where when concentration is there, there's the connecting, the sustaining, and an ease comes, and we can clearly see what our experience is. We find that, you know, when concentration is strong in our practice, the hindrances cease to uh, have power over the mind, that they, um, they can be let go of. They don't disturb the mind. They don't pull on our attention. Concentration is said to be one of the seven universal factors in the mind that arise in any moment of consciousness. And without these seven universal factors, consciousness is not possible. And I'm not going to go into what the other six are, but just to know that it is, it is something that arises in each moment of consciousness. And you know, it's something that we use in many different ways in our lives, you know, for watching TV, carrying on a conversation, driving a car, riding a bike. Um, You know, there's a term in today's culture that points to when concentration is strong and we're involved in sports, where it's described as being in the flow or in the zone. And this is where, you know, everything is unified um, there's no separation, no distraction, and just in the flow of experience. And this happens when concentration is strong. Athletes cultivate strong concentration. I was really struck last year when I was wa- watching the Olympics, and in particular, watching the gymnastics. And the gymnastics were held in a very large auditorium that had more than one gymnast um, performing at a time. And so it could happen that, you know, here's someone at the peak of their career as a gymnast and they might be on the high bar doing a double backflip or something like that. And just in the midst of it, somewhere else in the auditorium, something happens and people start booing or they start cheering really loudly, that gymnast would have to have incredibly strong concentration where the mind didn't waver. It wasn't perturbed by other events. of many different ways in our lives that we use concentration. And we actually also find that uh, concentration is used in many spiritual practices that, you know, really not at all limited to Buddhist practices. But we find that, uh, you know, that that it's used in prayer. It's used in visualizations. It can be used through uh, music, Uh, chanting, they all call upon concentration. And concentration, when it's really strong, actually helps to bring about psychic powers in the mind. Uh, Psychic powers such as having mental telepathy, being able to know the thoughts or mind, the mind of another person. Uh, It also can be a way where we find that we can hear sounds, sounds that may be really far away and yet there can be the hearing of them. Uh, concentration is the way in which people actually remember their past lives. i would said that through strong concentration, you can actually transform elements of earth, air, water, and fire, transforming one element into another. Uh, I think a few weeks ago I mentioned the book about Deepama, Knee Deep in Grace, Uh, quite a wonderful book which has many stories from her life. And Deepama was a woman who had very strong concentration. And somehow, in reading the stories about her concentration, helped me, uh, you know, since I hadn't experienced much of this in my own experience, to really get a sense of the pon- possibility of strong concentration. Whether it's because I know people that knew Deepama and, you know, she lived not so long ago. But for, for whatever reason, it helped to strengthen uh, my faith that psychic powers can be developed through concentration. And, you know, she was said to have been able to, at times, walk through a door, or that she could cook food through having energy come through her hands. It's also said that at night she might be walking down a road alone. And so as a form of protection she would create an image of someone walking beside her. So she had, at one point in her life, quite strong capacities through concentration. And um, Manindraji had been her teacher. He had... You know, helped her to really work with the strengthening of concentration. And at one point, there was a professor of ancient In- Indian history who was very skeptical about psychic powers. So, Maninder wanted to prove their existence to this man. And so, he had this man, the, the two of them, uh, decided to set up an experiment. And the professor found a very trusted graduate student who was to sit in a room with Deepama. while Deepama was meditating, and he was to confirm that she never left the room. And so on the appointed day, this graduate student sat there with Deepama. At the end of the session, he could confirm that she had never left the room. And yet, at the very same time, it was said that she appeared to the professor, who was in his office 10 miles away and had a conversation with him. I find it interesting, (laughs) pretty amazing. And I also want to say something else that Deepama said, something that I think is helpful to remember, that there came a point where Deepama actually stopped practicing these types of activities. And she said, it's because they were not important, and they involved the ego and were therefore a hindrance to liberation. So, not to encourage it. Um, The Buddha never encouraged this development of psychic powers, although it happens for some people. It can just be a part of practice but the ego becomes involved when we want these psychic powers, when we go after these psychic powers. And so, just to say, there's many different forms of concentration, many different ways it's utilized, but in the seven factors of enlightenment, what the Buddha was pointing to was the wholesome use of concentration. And this is where it's not rooted in greed, hatred, or delusion, where it's pointed towards awakening, the alleviation of suffering. Even uh, as we cultivate uh, concentration in our meditation practice, at times it may not be wholesome concentration, where we start wanting to get a certain state, or where we w- start wanting to get away from another state. So in real, we have to pay attention as we practice to see what our motivation is, whether we're really working with a wholesome form of concentration, Concentration functions through the mind being able to fix on the object of meditation to connect and sustain the attention. In the Buddhist dictionary it's described as the mental state of being firmly fixed or the fixing of the mind on a single object. In saying that, I think it's important because the word fixed is here and that can often sound rigid. It's important to realize that um, it isn't a rigidity of mind. It's actually said that the proximate cause of concentration is happiness. And this comes from a mind that is at ease, relaxed. So, in working with concentration, as you know, say we bring it to the breath moment after moment, it's not the grasping on to the breath, but it's the connecting and sustaining the attention. And with the sustaining, it's like a merging, not a holding or grasping, but almost like a, a deep relaxation into the experience. And when concentration is present, we're able to do this without the attention wavering. The mind really settles into the experience. Narada Mahatera, in the manual of Abhidhamma, says, It's like a steady lamp flame in a windless place. It is like a firmly fixed pillar that cannot be shaken by the wind. It is like water that binds together several substances to form one compound. It's actually said that the function of concentration is that of leadership. And it does so by this power of unification, uniting associated states that arise in the same moment. And it binds together these mental states which uh, arise at the same time. It's likened to how water binds the lather of soap. And this makes it so powerful. The power of concentration, it's something that we experience in our practice when this harnessing of all of this energy in the mind comes together in a unified way. A description that's used to Uh, illustrate the power of concentration is that of holding a sheet of paper out on a warm sunny day. As the rays of the Sun hit that sheet of paper it will warm the paper. But if we put a magnifying glass between the rays of the Sun and the sheet of paper As all of those rays which are really dispersed become unified through that magnifying glass, the power becomes such that the piece of paper can burst into flame. And what we find in our meditation is when we bring together all that energy that's usually dispersed and focus that energy it clearly illuminates what is there. And so when concentration is strong, we might find that experiences become larger than life. You know, we might be sitting and feeling the body, and suddenly it feels as if the body is filling the whole room. Or we might find that sensations become so strong I remember one time, you know, just going through the food line and as I went to pick up my plate and there was a feeling of heaviness. It was so strong, I almost dropped the plate. Or, you know, at another time um, in Burma, having a cold shower and just stepping into it and feeling coldness and through, you know, just the, the mind collecting on that sensation of coolness, it was like death. It was so cold. So we find that when concentration becomes strong, there's a great power, there's a great intensity that we can experience at times. And in order to bring this unification to the mind, it really requires of us a wholeheartedness. That we just, you know, apply body, speech, the totality of our being to connecting and sustaining with our experience. As we do so, we find that concentration manifests as peacefulness, bliss. There can be a great sense of well-being, a well-being experienced in body and mind, a deep ease. And concentration is the forerunner to equanimity because it is bringing this unshakable quality into the mind. Concentration practice itself was very prominent in the time of the Buddha. His first two teachers before he was the Buddha when he was practicing were teachers who taught very deep states of concentration. The Buddha practiced these concentration practices and he experienced the peace and tranquility that this concentration brought about, but he knew in his heart that this was not the release from suffering that he sought. He knew that it was conditioned that these states, however peaceful and tranquil they were, were only conditioned. And so he continued on in his search. He found a way to use these deep states of concentration as a basis for liberating insight. This concentration that he had developed became a platform, became that powerful force in the mind that could then be turned to the changing nature of experience. And so when the Buddha taught about concentration practice, it was not as uh, taught as being the end result, but as being a basis for insight. And this is seen throughout all of the different practices that he taught, that, um, you know, that, that there is the necessity to develop concentration in the mind. Necessity to develop serenity in the mind in order for the unfolding of insight. Sometimes we find in doing uh, some of the practices that he taught that there may be a period of time that one will really work with the strengthening of concentration and focus on this aspect of experience undertaking uh, samatha practices, concentration. And there's, you know, 40 objects of meditation that he spoke of, and some of these being the Brahma Viharas is taught as a concentration practice. Um, You know, last night we did metta, loving-kindness meditation. This is where we pick one object, and we keep returning the mind to this object of meditation over and over again. And, you know, we could just do a period of metta practice for months if we wanted to, really strengthening this quality in the mind. And then we could use that uh, kind of as the platform and then turn the mind towards vipassana insight meditation. We can also do it in another way, as we do when we practice just straight insight meditation where we work with um, the concentration and insight together in a sense that we're, we're working with both of these aspects and we do this when we work with developing momentary concentration momentary concentration in momentary concentration we use the present moment as our object of meditation. It could be one aspect of our experience, such as the breath, or it could be whatever is predominant in our experience. And we keep turning the mind towards the experience in the present moment. And the present moment is always changing. So what is seen and known in experience is continually changing, but the concentration is strengthened through the continuity, through connecting moment by moment by moment with experience. And this builds a strength of concentration, a strength of concentration that will lead to liberating insight. There are five factors that become developed when we strengthen concentration. The first of these is vitaka, applied thought, or the aiming and connecting of the mind. This vitaka, or applied thought, has a way of invigorating the mind. It brings a lot of energy in the mind. And this is helpful to remember in times when we're experiencing a lot of sloth and torpor, when there's low energy in the mind. At these times, we can really work with this factor of the connecting. We work at aiming the mind. So if the breath is our object of meditation, we work simply with just connecting with the breath, aiming the mind towards the experience of breath, not worrying about the sustaining. That happens, great. But in working with this connecting, it has that energy of, of harnessing, bringing together all of the energy that's there. And this is what's invigorating. The next factor is that of vichara. sustain sustain thought, or the immersion or rubbing of the attention in the object of meditation. This is where we come to know the experience in the experience, knowing the breath within the breath, not thinking, analyzing. We find that this quality, sustaining Immersing the mind in the object of meditation helps us to anchor the attention in the present moment. And when the attention is anchored in the present moment, this leaves no space for doubt to arise. The next factor that we find strengthened in concentration is that of pity or rapture, the raptness of mind, the keen interest in experience. We find that this brings about a delight in the mind that counteracts aversion. With concentration sukha also becomes strengthened and this is a happiness born of concentration, a contentment, ease, comfort. We find that this contentment helps to counteract restlessness. And then the last factor is that vikagata. It's a one-pointed, a one-pointedness of mind that brings about a clear, focused unity. And we find that this clear, focused unity transforms desire into pure dhamma desire. So, in case you didn't notice it, that um, all of these different jhanic factors, as they're called, work with counteracting the hindrances are actual antidotes to the hindrances. And this is why when we find that the mind is deeply concentrated, the hindrances fall away because these jhanic factors counter those hindrances. In serenity practice, we find that there is a progression of mind that goes from simple seclusion and then gradually lets go of any stimulating qualities until it culminates in the focused unity of mind, where the mind is protected from the hindrances. And then at this time, we experience a real purity of mind but to remember that this happiness born of concentration is a conditioned happiness. But even so, (coughs) excuse me, Even so, there's many qualities that <clears throat> are very helpful to our practice. When concentration is strong, the mind becomes very malleable, becomes very wieldy, it becomes supple, powerful, and isn't a great ally in the journey of awakening. But there is a very real and great danger that we will become very attached to states of concentration. And it happens when concentration or some of these other factors become very strong, beautiful, well-developed. And we begin to identify with them. We become attached to them. And then these very beautiful states actually become hindrances and it's hard not to become attached to them because they can be better than anything we've ever tasted in our lives before and so you know you're sit you've had a rough life you sit down you get concentrated and poof bless why not hang out here <laughs> you know an important thing for me was to understand that actually that attachment is a part of the path. Because until we really experience that attachment and then suffer as the consequences of it, I mean those sittings where you sit down and you just try so hard to get concentrated and you're like the little dog that's trying to lay down and just scratching holes as you go. You know, it's painful. and Now, until we really know the pain of it, we set up our practice around experiencing these beautiful states of mind. You know, we're tantalized by them. But, you know, when we continue on, we, one, come to know the pain of the attachment of clinging or identifying to these states, and we also begin to see them just as states. We know, uh, we get a sense of the attachment diminishing when we can sit and be with the most brilliant light show in just the same way that we open to our knee pain. We know it's just another experience. And we don't set about trying to manufacture that experience. When we start to experience attachment to some of these states, it's um, what's called the corruptions of insight. And that's where these very beautiful states become a hindrance, a corruption. Even though we need to uh, work with these beautiful states of mind, if we hang on to them, they become a corruption in the mind. You know, and certainly when we work with co- concentration, uh, light is a common experience that many people have. And, you know, in some religions that it's spoken of this, there being divine light. So we're sitting and we experience a radiance in the mind. You know, it can be you know, as if you're sitting in a dark room and it's filled with light. You know, And we might perceive it as being the light of God and that we are having some special experience. We've identified with it in some way. We can experience it through the clarity that we sometimes get in our practice. When all of the factors come together and things are seen so clearly, So precisely, we can experience it in those profound moments of deep stillness. The moments of rapture flowing through the body, lightness, the ease, the tingling. We become identified. You know, even to the point where it's sometimes called a stopping within. We think we've made it. Marcia spoke about this a little bit in her last talk. Really important to know, these are only conditioned experiences. And we need to keep going. We need to keep staying present, attentive to our experience. In order to cultivate concentration, it is a training of the mind. At times we might feel utterly hopeless with it, where it feels very difficult. And yet, with persistent, steady effort, we will find our concentration deepening. It's important to remember that it is a training or we will lose faith and confidence in the times when it's difficult. In it seems like in the west, you know, we often want instant enlightenment. We want the easy way. And so it's not always that way. I was just today reading an article in a Buddha Dharma magazine. And there were some questions being asked of a, a Japanese Zen master, Aido Shimano Roshi. One of the questions he asked is Do you think that we in the West are fooling ourselves about how easy Buddhism is? And he responded by saying, Ah, allow me to be frank. I have such an impression. Yes. <laughs> We want the easy way. It might not always feel easy, but if we can be easeful in our steadiness, you know, um, and remembering in the strengthening of concentration, the proximate cause for it is happiness. So even though it requires this great diligence it also requires a relaxation. And, you know, those times in your practice where you're unhappy, you know how difficult it is to concentrate the mind. So, seeing if we can't relax, be easeful, and yet steady, unwavering, Concentration is said to be the proximate cause for the arising of wisdom. And this is through the rallying together out of all these other factors and from this the blossoming of wisdom. So I'd like to share some of the ways of support for the strengthening of concentration. Again, wise attention. So, moment by moment, bringing mindfulness to our experience. In doing so, really taking care throughout everything that we do in the day. You know, as um, in sitting meditation, It might be that we're really diligent, coming back over and over again. But if we want to strengthen our concentration, then it becomes important to not stop at the end of a sitting, but to carry that momentum right through the transition of shifting the body, getting up, and beginning to walk, and into the walking it becomes important to really nurture this moment-to-moment mindfulness through everything that we do in the day. And in this way, the concentration becomes deeply strengthened. If we don't do this, if we sit, there's some momentum in practice, but then we carelessly get up and move on to the next thing. Then we have to gather and collect the attention again. Where, if we pay attention in that transition period, the momentum strengthens, concentration strengthens the power or the, the practice becomes more powerful. It said to be helpful, to keep a balance in the mind. There's two different ways that in relationship to concentration this balance is spoken about. One is the balance of concentration and energy. If concentration is getting too strong, not balanced with energy, um, that we can um, fall into what's called sinking mind, where we stop being able to notice or see clearly the qualities of the experience. And so we just need to arouse a little bit more interest, energy, um, in the practice. Or um, if we find that the energy is too strong, there's going to be restlessness. So then we need to strengthen the concentration. So just keeping these two factors, concentration and energy, in balance so that they're supporting each other and one's not overtaking the other. It's said for strengthening concentration there also needs to be a balance between faith and wisdom. If we have too much faith and not enough wisdom then we can have what's called blind faith and might become overly zealous in the practice or if there's uh, too much wisdom and not enough faith, the mind can become very hypocritical, cunning, and very dry. In strengthening concentration, we also need to learn how to uplift the discouraged mind. We need to Learn ways of gladdening the mind when we are in a state of discouragement. One of the most powerful practices that I have done in working with a discouraged mind happened uh, when I was in some of the deepest, darkest spaces I've encountered in my life. And it was because of illness, a prolonged illness, and so, you know, uh, you know long periods of lack of energy, and a practice that felt like my lifeline during a very difficult time was to do a practice of gratitude and appreciation. And it was to just sit and bring to mind or lay down. I didn't have the energy always to sit up, but just to bring to mind some aspect of experience that I could appreciate in that moment. And so, you know, sometimes it might be that the sun was shining, or that I had a roof over my head, that I had food to eat, that I had friends around me. And sometimes, you know, even at that time, the cognitive function of the mind might not have been so strong. But I could practice it by just sitting and looking at a plant or a flower, and this helped to bring a brightness to the mind. It helped to gladden the mind, and this, in turn, can help to strengthen concentration. In strengthening concentration, we also need to learn about calming the over-enthusiastic mind. You know, we find moments in our practice. Maybe it's a moment of insight, and it's exciting. We need to um, learn about steadiness as a way of calming the mind. Or that sometimes, you know, we're with the breath and in our, our over-enthusiastic mind throwing ourselves into the experience and leaning forward to, into the experience. And so we just learn that we need to settle back. We need to give emphasis to receptivity, and this helps to bring about the concentration. We also need to learn how to cheer the mind when it is withered by pain. I find that right now in my own life, I'm really opening up to the reality of aging. You know, some of it in my own experience and some because uh, myself and many of my friends have elderly parents, people who experience pain day after day after day. And it can be so withering to the mind. In our practice, we experience how withering it is when we have chronic knee pain, chronic back pain, And, you know, there can be a sitting where we're okay with it, but after some time, tired of it, withering, the mind becomes dry, wilted. And so we have to learn ways that we can turn the attention where the energy gets replenished, rejuvenated. We need to be able to find a way to rest the attention at these times. Which can be, you know, just taking the attention away from um, that which is agitating and focusing on sound, hearing, or focusing on the breath. strengthening concentration, which will bring about peace, ease. it's said that it's helpful to the strengthening of concentration to reflect on the peace of absorption. And, you know, it can be that as we become more familiar with the peace of concentration, that sometimes it's almost like we come to know it on a cellular level. And it's like you just turn the mind back to the remembering of that experience and it poof pops into being. It's remembered. That peace it becomes a felt sense. So learning in our practice to recognize when concentration is present. Learning to recognize the times when concentration is not present. At these times it's not to beat ourselves up, to be frustrated, but just to remember what are the ways we can strengthen concentration. Strengthening it through a unification of the mind, bringing a a wholehearted attention to our experience, to connecting and sustaining the attention with this experience through immersing the mind into the experience with a deep relaxation. From this, we find the mind becoming malleable, wieldy, We find great strength and power in the mind, which becomes the platform for insight. Remembering that all of these seven factors are what slants the mind towards Nibbana, awakening. For some of us, this may be a very helpful framework in which we do the practice. It helps us to understand what's happening as we practice. For some of us, it might be taking us more into an analysis of our experience that is more intellectual or it might be taking you into striving, trying to perfect these seven factors of enlightenment. If it is affecting you in some unhealthy way, to really see if you just can't let your practice be fueled by your love of the Dhamma, your love of truth, and just be wholeheartedly practicing, fueled by this great love. We are really only looking for skillful means to help us to be able to discover for ourselves wisdom and compassion, to help us to be able to realize our natural home. So let's just sit for a moment. May all beings come to know the power of the unified mind leading to liberating insight.